in installing officers, I use a form for worship, and it is taken from an old uh, book of worship forms written by uh, Alexander Hodge. As you go back in church history, you'll find that um, through the centuries, Protestant, Catholic, um, Methodist, Episcopalian, Anglican, Presbyterian, Lutheran, that really our forms are not very different. And especially when you study the marriage service, you'll find that most of the words in the marriage service go back to about the 10th or 11th century, the Sarum rite. Um, but there are some unique things about Presbyterian government, and they do come through clearly in what Hodge writes here. And one of the things that's beautiful about Presbyterian government is the fact that we don't put eldership on one man as it is in all Baptist churches. Now, Baptists more and more are moving to have elders rather than one. But typically in a Baptist church, historically, there's one elder and that's the pastor. And then you have deacons. And you know from Scripture the office of elder and deacon is a very different office. And uh, nor do you have the episcopacy of the Methodists or the Anglicans where... Um, you have a sense as you watch the Anglican, the Episcopal Church in this country uh, slide that uh, there's not much accountability to the people in the pews. Well, in the Presbyterian system, you have a beautiful system where, uh, as Hodge writes, uh, God has rested or deposited the permanent government on men who live permanently in the midst of the people and have their trust. You remember that. And then he goes on and he says, in this way, Presbyterians have secured their affairs from clerical bigotry and tyranny. And certainly any of us watching um, would somebody grab this table with me? I'm going to go crazy. It's shining right in my eyes and I can't see. I hope this will do it. Do me a favor, just grab that and put that up on that. Sorry about that, but... (laughs) Much better. Well, not really. (laughs) This will work. Yeah, let's just take it a little bit. Well, that kind of violates my sense of propriety, but I guess now that I'm up wandering around in a worship service, where's propriety anyhow? (laughs) I don't know why that's never been a problem before. I don't know. Thank you, David. Anyhow, in the Presbyterian Church... Um, you have a sense that there is a freedom uh, that is lacking in the Episcopal Church, namely to say to now Bishop Robinson, no. And uh, it's a very interesting connection with our text this morning, which I'd ask you to turn to in Galatians chapter 1, because you're going to find this theme of true and false shepherds, this theme of accountability of shepherds. And where does that accountability come from? How should it be carried out? You're going to find this all through the book of Galatians. Um, This past week, I met for breakfast with uh, Dave Carell and a man from another city who is uh, a spiritual leader in that city. We met... um, where I like to go for breakfast, which is the Cracker Barrel over on 37. And uh, we, had a, we had a lot of conversations about what is and isn't true in Scripture and, and doctrinal matters. And at the end of the breakfast, I had noted that a woman sitting next to the table was very, uh, very much taken up with our conversation. She didn't look our way, but I could tell she was listening. She was quite close. And she sat there for a long time, because we sat there for a long time. So as, as we got up to leave, and uh, I let the other men pay the bill, um, <laughs> um, I went over and I said to her, I, I said that was quite a conversation, because I thought, you know, there might have been some things that needed to be interpreted. 
and it was very interesting. Um, she made a comment, something to the effect that, well, you know, all we need is to pray the prayer of Jabez. And uh, she said, we just, we, you know, we love Jesus and we pray the prayer of Jabez and, and, and that's all we need. And I was happy that she was praying the prayer of Jabez and that she had read the book. Um, but I also knew she was saying something that wasn't true. Namely, that God is honored when we stick with the essentials. Namely, praying for God's blessing and trusting in Jesus. And that there's nothing beyond that. And so, uh, trying to be very gentle about it, but to, to shake her a little bit in her confidence that that's all we need, I said to her, I said, has it ever occurred to you that the entire New Testament is, is one long controversy over doctrine? No, no, no. We, it's, and she said something like, it's just John 3.16. And, uh, I mean, she didn't say John 3.16, but that's what she was saying. And I said, no, stop and think for a second. Even think about the Gospels. What are the Gospels filled with? The Gospels are filled with the controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's just filled with it, and that's why Jesus dies. And I said, then you go to the epistles, and I said, what are the epistles? The epistles are a record of controversies where the Apostle Paul, mainly, is engaging the people of the church, trying to move them from error to truth. Now, there are incidental exhortations to various uh, acts of holiness and purity in there. But you see woven through, and of course Galatians and Romans are the best example, but it's not absent in Philippians, it's not absent in Colossians, it's not absent in the, book of, the two books of Corinthians to the Corinthians. Um, and it is very interesting how today um, we do have a great deal of difficulty not seeing everything as being the milk that's referred to in Hebrews, and that's where I went next. Because she, she, was, she would have none of that. No, there wasn't, you know, doctrine was not the New Testament. The New Testament was the prayer of Jabez in John 3.16. And if you think about it, that is what the faith of the Christian church in America is today. It's the prayer of Jabez after John 3.16. You wouldn't want to have the prayer of Jabez before John 3.16. But once you've got John 3.16, it's the prayer of Jabez. And, and you get them to John 3.16 by the prayer of Jabez. You understand that? And, and so I thought, you know, I'll bet she remembers Hebrews. And so I quoted to her the statement in Hebrews that we're not supposed to stick with milk, but move on to meat. Because every mother can understand that. And then she began to click in. And it was, it was very sweet to see that she began to understand that the prayer of Jabez and John 3.16 are milk. And milk must not be corrupted. There's something terribly wicked about a child in the womb being killed. Well, equally so, a newborn child feeding it poison when it's supposed to have its mother's milk. And yet, there's so much in Scripture for our lives and for our protection. So much meat. And, uh, well, as we go to Galatians 1, 6 to 10 this morning, uh, what's at stake is not the meat. It's the milk. And it's poison. And it's very interesting to watch how the Apostle Paul um, engages this. And right next to the issue, all the way through, is the question of his own legitimacy. I mean, it's just constant. We'll get into that this morning. But first, let's read our text, which is Galatians 1, 6 to 10. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. I am amazed... that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for another gospel, which is not really another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. 
For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Don't you love Paul? I mean, really, really love Paul. Um, I love Paul. Well, this is the word of God. God has been pleased to make these words his word. And we ought to be thankful as we receive them. Now, when we speak, we have a habit of speech. And the habit of speech uh, is to add an explosive element to the rebuke of a family member that indicates the affection that we hold them in. It, it, it's, it's somewhat a statement of vulnerability when we make it, although it's offensive when it's given. But it's clear it's an in-family offense. And the habit is to say something like this uh, to our husband or wife or to a child or to our parents. We say, I can't believe you did that. It boggles my mind. What on earth were you thinking? And this is similar to what the Apostle Paul is saying when he begins, I can't believe, it boggles my mind, or as he puts it, I am amazed. It's tender. It's a rebuke, and it's tender. And when he gets to rebuking the false shepherds, the false apostles, he's not being tender. He's just out there. But when it comes to his rebuke of the people in the church... He says, I'm amazed. Now, what is it that boggles the Apostle Paul's mind about these Galatians? Well, his mind is boggled that they are deserting Jesus Christ for another gospel. And not just deserting him, but that they're doing it so quickly. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Now, when I began on this sermon a few days ago, I, I wrote, at this point, three pages, which I have now pulled out of the sermon. But I want you, without going through those pages, I want you to enter into a little bit um, the feeling of what exactly it was that they had and what it was that they gave it up for. And I kept trying to think, what example in the present world where you're given a precious, precious possession and then a usurper comes in or a counterfeit. And quickly, you go over to, to it for its bangles. Well, there are some things that, are, that, that we don't talk about in public that probably the best illustration, namely adultery. But I want to talk about just a little bit about what we've all seen with our loved ones and our friends, the issue of divorce and then child custody. And I, as I thought about it, I thought about a child that's with its mother in the home, say a son, and maybe he has a younger sister, and, and on Christmas morning they get up, and everything in the house is in order. They bounce out of the beds, they go downstairs, the Christmas tree is beautiful with its lights, the gifts are under, um, the mother's in the kitchen making omelets or something, eggs at the stove. Uh, there's a peace in the home. Christmas music is playing, and they start ripping the packages under the tree out onto the floor. They don't take the wrappers off, but they're looking at all the name cards, and they know the habit. They know the traditions. They know that pretty soon uh, they're going to all uh, sit down to a quick breakfast because the, the adults want the children to be able to get at the presents as soon as possible. And then they're going to... And then they're going to sit around in the living room and they're going to recite Luke 2 from the King James Version as has been done for uh, centuries. And uh, then they're going to sing a couple Christmas carols and then they're going to pray and thank God for his gift of Jesus Christ. And then they'll get to open the presents and, and, and the presents will, will clearly demonstrate the affection that their parents have for them because they'll be carefully chosen for them. And it won't be about the parents, it'll be about them. They'll be the center of attention. In other words, this is a beautiful home. Uh, if they fail to thank, the, say, a grandparent that's there, the parents will tell them, go over and kiss your grandmother and say thank you. Everything about it is, is orderly. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't maybe some tears or some jealousy. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, it's a beautiful thing. And then into that, in, in the middle of it, comes the doorbell, and these children who live in a home that now is well-ordered, that loves them, 
that is free of the corruption of sin get pulled out of that home and are taken off to a crack house. Now, maybe it's not quite that bad, but you get the idea, a house that some of us cleaned a little while ago, where the child lives in blue smoke, a haze covers every window. There's a burner out on the front porch that, 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 that they're purifying the cocaine through. There's, there's trash piled up to the ceiling of the garage. There's a different man every night. There's a constant fear of the police. And they go over to that home, but that other parent who shares custody knows how to handle it well. Namely, that parent, instead of giving them a number of smaller gifts that are well suited to the child without making the child a materialist, that parent has done the big thing and has bought the son a dirt bike. Okay, Stephen. <laughs> I mean, you get the point? You get the point? Why? Why a dirt bike? Well, because then they look at their child and they say to their child, what? You know, does your mother love you as much as I love you? You know, did your mother get you a dirt bike? You know, go on out back and, and ride your dirt bike. And so they go out and ride and a little while they, they get they get hungry and they know at home right now the turkey's about to go onto the table or whatever you have for Christmas. Uh, but they go in the house and there's, there's, there's terrible curses going between the father and the living. And they're fighting. And slowly they back out of the house. All right? And then they come in later and they, they, they put a, a, a burrito in the microwave. All right? And then it's time to go home. Now, if that child were to go home, and, and the father's too drunk to take them home, and so the girlfriend takes them home, and the mother sees that when she goes to the door, she sees that the father hasn't been able to pull himself away from the television and his beer. And when they get home, what would happen if that child were to go on and on about how much fun he had? What would the mother think? The mother would think something like the Apostle Paul. I can't believe but she can't say it. This is a tragedy of divorce. The parents fight through the children, even as adults. Now, my point is not to warn you against divorce. I, I'm happy to do that any time. But my point is, take the beauty of the first home and then set it against the, the, the complete bondage of the second home. It's in bondage to every kind of sin, even down to jealousy and bitterness and hostility through little children. And that doesn't come close to showing what the gospel was, but what they were trading in. And here's the father of these children, this, this church. He says, I can't believe. I can't believe that you would trade this. What is in your brain? How could you not see? Do you know what he is? You know, and the Apostle Paul is, is just exclaiming over what? Their stupidity? Their um, naivete? He can't believe it. And then, he says what it is they're abandoning, who it is they're abandoning, and it is the one who called them by the grace of Christ. And you think of those two homes, one filled with, with bondage, the other filled with grace and love. And yet here the Galatians are turning away from the grace and peace of Jesus Christ to the bondage of the law. It's very interesting, though, to see how different the rebuke of the Apostle Paul is of the Galatian believers than his rebuke of the false shepherds that are leading them astray. And this is the thing that we have to remember about Jesus. When people say that Jesus was love and mercy and that he hung out with sinners, and they go on and say, and therefore, anyone who engages in doctrinal controversy is not of Jesus Christ. What they're forgetting is how Jesus met the spiritual leaders. And it's exactly the same with the Apostle Paul. Tender with the sheep. But when it comes to the wolves that are devouring the flock, not tender at all. And if we look at what he says... He says, beginning in verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven 
should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you. He is to be accursed. And this word accursed is the word that's used in the Old Testament when the Israelites are to take a city and to completely wipe it out. Why? Because everything in the city is devoted to God. It's that word devoted that's here. And when you're devoted to God, you're burned. All right? Everyone in Hill is devoted to God. And so when he says, let him be accursed, what he's saying is, let him be burned in the holiness of God. Let him be damned. Damn him. So on the one hand, I can't believe, and on the other hand, let him be damned. And this is the same man. He hasn't gone from being a tender father to being a monster. But in both cases, he is a tender father. Uh, One of the commentators, I think it was Luther, said something like, you know, imagine a parent who finds the child being attacked by a dog and with the child bends over and lifts the child up into his arms and holds him against his, his chest. But with the dog... (laughs) damn him. He will have no remorse, even if it's the pet dog of an elderly woman who lost her husband 20 years ago and the pet dog is a lap dog. He'll kill that dog. And this is the same man. He's not turned from a gentleman into a monster, but he's a father both times. He's a father to his flock. Now, why such a difference in his treatment of the Galatian Christians and of the wolves that are devouring the flock? Well, because leaders are always judged more severely than those they are to lead. This is what it means in James when it says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we ourselves will be judged more strictly, such as we incur a stricter judgment. When leaders fail by leading souls astray, Leading the sheep under their care away from Jesus, it's not simply this world's judgment that they come under, but that of the next world, the judgment of God. You remember Jesus' warning where Jesus in Matthew 7 said this, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, so these were clearly leaders, And he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So it's no small thing that's at stake with the new interpretation of the gospel taking the Galatians church by storm. Rather, this new interpretation was nothing less than a denial of the gospel, of the true way of salvation. And that's what it says in verse 6. It says, deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. What? For, look at verse 6, for a what? For a different gospel. Now, how many gospels are there? One. That's right. One. And so a different gospel is what? It's no gospel. A different gospel is no gospel because there's only one gospel. And he goes on and says in verse 7, which is really not another. In other words, it's not a gospel. It really isn't. So look at what the Apostle Paul writes, and it's clear that the false teachers, false shepherds, are leading the Christians in Galatia to desert Jesus Christ to believe another gospel that's really not another gospel, but bondage. Instead of healing and guarding the Galatians, they're disturbing them and distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God to save all those who believe. Now, part of what saddened Paul about the situation was that it all happened so quickly. He is amazed, he says, that they are so quickly deserting Jesus. Now, we can't date this letter precisely, but it's likely that Paul wrote it a short time after he had been in the district of Galatia preaching the gospel and seen at that time many souls believing in Jesus Christ. And so it's not hard to imagine why his disappointment is so raw as he writes. Uh, Imagine a pastor who faithfully shepherds a flock for five or ten years and then is called someplace else and uh, saw many souls come to the Lord in that church, but When he hears of the church, receives a letter, or goes back for a visit, he sees that the church has forsaken Christianity for Mormonism or for Roman Catholicism or for some heretical uh, doctrine which puts at the center of the hope of the people their good works of righteousness instead of the blood of Christ. 
And imagine his disillusionment. Imagine how sad it would make him. Well, this is the Apostle Paul's situation, and he's not at all pleased. He's disappointed with the new believers that he loves so, but he's furious with those leading them astray. Now, noting that one of the things Paul finds it most difficult to bear is that it's happened all so quickly, so soon after they came first to faith in Jesus Christ. We ourselves ought to take warning from that. And what would the warning be? If you were to think about that, the issue, I'm amazed that you so quickly are abandoning the gospel. What would be the application of that to our lives? As you read scripture, you should constantly say, all right, well, what's the application of this to me? What's the application of this to my church, to my family, to uh, the Christians that I know and love? Well, if the Galatian Christians were able so quickly to turn from the gospel, an application that should be very clear to us is that we should suspect that we ourselves are capable very quickly of turning away from the gospel. What would make us think that the Galatians were susceptible to being led away from Jesus, but that we are secure? It doesn't make any sense. And so uh, we need to be careful. In fact, uh, we need to think about the fact that all through history it is a constant that souls are easily corruptible, that doctrine is easily turned away from truth to falsehood, that, that heresy so constantly springs up. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, we receive this exhortation, therefore let him who thinks he stands, what? Take heed that he does not fall. If you think you stand in the true doctrine, take heed that you do not fall. We have to be on guard today against those who seek to lead Christians astray, enticing them to deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not a little thing to find a wolf among sheep. And finding one preying upon them, shepherds must not refuse to be as bloody as the Apostle Paul. When I went into the pastor, I read a statement, and I don't think it was a Christian statement, it was just about leadership, but it said something to the effect that uh, any man who, uh, who decides to engage in the battle for truth needs to roll up his pants and his shirt sleeves. And that's true. Uh, true shepherds will not refuse to be as bloody as the Apostle Paul. I always think of doctors, and I think, can you imagine a doctor who said, I don't do blood? You know, because it's so obvious that Americans are idolatrous, we're idolatrous about our bodies. We'll spend any amount of money, get our federal government to take it over, we'll do anything we have to to keep our bodies breathing as long as possible. And we will allow them to cut us. But when it comes to our souls and doctrine, there's this disconnect. You know, doctors can do blood, and, and if they didn't, they'd be unfaithful. But do you really want your elders to do blood? Well, maybe there are some people that need it, but America's Christian. You know, and, and, and we're a Reformed church and Protestant. And we don't do blood. You know, we don't need to do blood. You know, Luther had to do blood. And Calvin knocks, you know, but we don't have to do blood, you know. Let him who stands, who thinks he stands, beware lest he fall. This is why I am not a nations. People ask me, why are you in the PCA? Mainly Jay Lee and my wife, Mary Lee. And uh, I keep telling them that I'm not in the PCA because I think the PCA stands and won't fall. I'm in the PCA because I think it has the closest doctrine to what Scripture represents. But I'm not into the organization, and I'm not into the, to, to the reputation. I'm into the doctrine. And I have no, no illusion about how long the PCA will stand. None. None. So think about this. They've been given the gospel and the peace and the grace that comes from the gospel. And then they turn aside, and they turn aside to bondage. Now, about this point, you ought to stop and think to yourself, well, that doesn't make any sense. Everybody loves freedom. America is the land of the free and the home of the brave. 
And so why on earth would they turn away from freedom to bondage? And right there, you begin to study Scripture. You go from just reading the words to thinking of the application. And I think immediately, it would be a good discipline for us to think about the Israelites. I mean, of all the things that the Israelites did that were wacko, how about this? They're in the middle of the wilderness. It's 45 days after they've left Egypt. They're hungry, and what do they say? Do you remember? Here's what they say in Exodus 16. Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. There's slaves in Egypt. And you know the circumstance. They were awful. It was because of their pleading that the Lord heard them and rescued them. And now they want to go back. And this theme of freedom and yet our desire to return to bondage is a constant theme in Scripture. We should always remember that this story of the Israelites in the wilderness is a story for us today. It is a type of the Christian life. So when Jesus came, what did Jesus say? Jesus made it clear that freedom was at the heart of what he brought to us. In Luke 4, it says he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. So he intentionally goes to this place, all right? He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release or liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to what? to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favor we are of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus claimed to come to set us free. No more let sin and sorrow, thorns infest the ground. In John 8, it says, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. They answered him, what? We're Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? What kind of freedom is that? It's a bondage. It's the exact same freedom that the Galatians are being sold by the false shepherds when they're told that they need to get circumcised. We have Abraham as our father. So how does Jesus respond? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. In other words, the day is going to come when God will send you from his presence. Despite Abraham as your father, you don't have him as your father. And then he says this, So, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Later in Galatians, Paul, picking up this theme, says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. So this is what is at stake. It's nothing less than choosing the bondage of the law through circumcision or choosing freedom in Christ through faith. That's what's at stake. Now note that the false shepherds, the false apostles, do not come to the Galatian Christians as demons denying Christ explicitly, but as if they were really as faithful to Jesus Christ as the Apostle Paul, only they had more truth. 
a more impassioned and faithful gospel than Paul. Claiming apostolic authority, they aim to improve upon the gospel. And this is the way of Satan attacking the church still today, seeking to subvert souls safely gathered into her bosom, drawing them down the road to perdition under the guise of leading them to heaven. And this is always the way of Satan. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So the center of the question the Apostle Paul addresses in Galatians is not a matter of whose apostolic credentials are true, and whose are false, but rather the center is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And men and angels demonstrate the legitimacy of their claims of authority by their actions of either defending or attacking the gospel. But so often, we turn from the doctrine to the person. And we make men the issue, seeking to attack arguments by focusing on the messenger rather than the message. In philosophy, it's called the ad hominem argument. All right? So, for instance, pick it up, think, what would they have been saying? Well, maybe something like this. You know, that man Paul is not a true apostle, but only a Johnny-come-lately to the Jerusalem crowd. You remember he used to run around persecuting the church, men and women alike? And we all know a leopard can't change his spots. He's dangerous. He'll do anything to get an audience. Always the big statement, grand gesture for him. He only barely escaped from Damascus. He was such a troublemaker, they had to let him down over the city wall in a basket in order for him to escape. And then remember Lystra? There he was stoned and dragged out of the city, left for dead. He was beaten in Philippi. And then again, he was beaten outside the temple in Jerusalem. They closed the gates of the temple. Paul, that's disgusting. There's something not entirely trustworthy about this man, Paul. And you Galatians need to be careful placing all your eggs in his basket. And another thing, he's inconsistent. Why does he tell you Galatians not to circumcise yourselves, but he has his pet junior preacher, Timothy, circumcised? What's that about, huh? Which is it, Paul? Make up your mind. Talk about speaking with a forked tongue. Look, dear Galatian friends, if you want to be safe, you better travel further down the path of faith than the Apostle Paul is letting you go. Truth is, he wants to reserve the best stuff for his family and friends, for Timothy, for instance, while holding you at bay, making you stay back at the milk stage. Apostle, my foot, what a hypocrite. And so they seek to undermine the gospel by attacking the messenger, and they think that showing his inconsistencies and showing his Johnny-come-lately uh, uh, questionable apostolic credentials that, that they've dealt with the gospel. As often as we attack the man instead of the argument, though, we also trust the argument by placing our faith in the man rather than the truth of his message. In other words, as we attack the man instead of the message, we also trust the man instead of the message. And again, a thing I love about Paul is he just doesn't do it. I'll never forget, at the end of his life, my dad wrote this article saying, okay, what do I want to say to people that are going to come after me and I'm going to be dead? And there were a number of things. Um... But one of the things I remember most clearly is he said, when any man seeks to have you follow him, and as you go on relating to him as a leader, he cultivates your dependence on him. He said, have nothing to do with him. He said, a true Christian leader will cultivate your independence of him as a man. Well, look at Paul. What does he do? Look at verse 8. He's in the middle of the argument and he says what? He says, even if we, in other words, if I, 
All right, it's a little circumlocution. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. No man is to be trusted but God in his word alone. And to raise any man into the position of himself being infallible is what? It's idolatry. And the Apostle Paul makes this clear by going through a list of those not to be trusted and he starts the list with himself. And then he goes to the angels. It almost seems impious for the Apostle Paul to speak of cursing the angels. But the angels are just creatures made by the Creator. Anyone who opposes the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be accursed. It doesn't matter who he is. It's very good for us to understand how expendable men are. Even the men that led you to the Lord. He was their tender mother in the faith. He was their father in the faith. And he says, damn me if I lead you away from Jesus Christ and the gospel. And damn the angels and damn anybody that does that to you. Now, I have to make this point because it's a necessary point. This same week... I was reading in a Roman Catholic newspaper where somebody wrote in and asked them, how can the Pope be infallible? Okay? And so I want to read this to you. This is what the Catholic Church says. All right? The Catholic Church, July 18, 1870, Pope Pius IX declared himself to be infallible. He declared himself to be infallible. All right? Vatican I says this, quote, Vatican I, Roman Catholic newspaper, The Wanderer, okay? Quote, If anyone therefore shall say that the blessed Peter the Apostle was not appointed the prince of the apostles and the visible head of the whole church militant, or that the same, Peter, directly and immediately received from the same, our Lord Jesus Christ, a primacy of honor only and not of true and proper jurisdiction, let him be anathema. Moving on. If then anyone shall say that it is not by the institution of Christ the Lord or by divine right that blessed Peter has a perpetual line of successors in the primacy over the universal church or that the Roman pontiff is not the successor of blessed Peter in this primacy, let him be anathema. Therefore, faithfully adhering to the tradition received from the beginning of the Christian faith for the glory of God our Savior, the exaltation of the Catholic religion, and the salvation of Christian people, with the approval of the sacred council, we teach and define that it is a dogma divinely revealed that the Roman pontiff, the Pope, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in discharge of the office of pastor and teacher of all Christians, by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine regarding faith or morals to be held by the universal church is by the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter possessed of that infallibility by which the divine redeemer willed that his church should be endowed defining doctrine regarding faith and morals and that therefore such definitions of the Roman pontiff are of themselves and not from the consent of the church irreformable but if anyone which may God avert exclamation mark presume to contradict this our definition let him be Anathema. Cardinal Manning, at the time, commenting on this, says this, quote, The infallibility of the head of the church extends to the whole matter of revelation. The infallibility of that man in Rome extends to all of revelation. That man in Rome, okay, it extends to the divine truth and the divine law and to all those facts or truths which are in contact with faith and morals. It's growing. The definitions of the church include truths of the natural order and the revelations of supernatural truth in contact with natural ethics, politics, and philosophy. The doctrines of the consubstantiality of the Son or transubstantiation and of the constitution of humanity touch upon truths of philosophy and of the natural order, but being in contact with the faith, they fall within the infallibility of the church. And then finally, Cardinal Manning says this, 
Quote, the rule of God's dealings is that revelation should be not a discovery, but an inheritance. Now, if he were talking about the inheritance of the book of Galatians, we could agree. But it's the inheritance of the chair in Rome. Do not make the mistake of thinking that the bloodiness with the Roman Catholic Church is for the Reformation. It is not accidental that the same ones that tell you to trust them because they have the true apostolic succession have people all over the world putting their money in boxes still today thinking that they're purchasing the freedom of the souls of their loved ones from purgatory. Don't ever make that mistake. You just have to look this thing in the face. You have to see that the fruit of the Roman Catholic Church through the ages is a fruit of legalism. It is a fruit of returning to the law. You can have Catholics and Protestants get together and, and aim at being ambiguous in the words that they choose and come up with evangelicals and Catholics together and think that they're going to have some sort of rapprochement. But the truth is that always in the history of the church, there have been men who have said, I am the true apostolic succession. And I am telling you that Jesus Christ is not enough. You must add to Christ works. And that is absolutely what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It's nuanced. There are new statements issued. But you go back to the Council of Trent you read the council's documents and it's very clear that they are calling anathema, they are anathematizing all those who teach that salvation is through faith by grace. All right? We are justified by grace through faith, but not faith by itself. All right? We do believe in good works, but we do not believe in imputed righteousness. Now, I'm going to have to stop. But here's the point. How could you think that the book of Galatians is a dusty book? How could you think that today there's no battle that needs to be fought except with Bishop Gene Robinson? You know the pathetic thing? The pathetic thing is, this Bishop Gene Robinson, or whatever his name is, he's small potatoes. All he is is one more perverted religious man that wants to have sex and religion at the same time. I mean, that's the Oneida community. That's Mormonism. That's Islam. That's as old as the hills. The real problem with the mainline denominations is not that they have perverse people who are finally having the bald-faced chutzpah to get up in public and say what they've been doing for years and demand that it be called a sacrament. Okay? The real incredible thing is that a hundred years ago, when they gave up the substitutionary atonement, when they gave up any sense of the atonement being Christ taking our place, taking the sins of the world upon Himself, all right, any judicial notion of the atonement, then everybody yawned and said, well, there are many ways of approaching the atonement, many ways of thinking about salvation. And then, sowing the wind, we reap the whirlwind where you look at this man and you say, this man has no more to do with Jesus Christ than a dog returning to its vomit. I mean, he's abandoned his wife, he's abandoned his children, he's now shacked up with a man, and he calls it a gift from God. And everybody's having a fit about it. Well, what about when he denied the substitutionary atonement? You see, it's just the fruit. We need to go back and we need to see that any time we have people who say to us, bondage is the real path of God, do you think God's going to take you the way you are? Clean yourself up. With an emphasis on yourself. Okay? And so what is the gospel? Well, at Christmas time, the gospel is what? Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Oh, it sounds so spiritual when somebody says, you can't be at rest. You've got to be in bondage. You have freedom. You freedom. 
Look at how you use from 7 to 10 o'clock in your, in your dorm room. Give you freedom? Look at your dad. You think he deserves freedom? Discipline and the law. This is what is going to get you to heaven. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. And then, what? By thine all-sufficient Merit. Merit. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. This is the gospel. The gospel is that it's not our merit, that we can't merit. The gospel is that it's the merit of Jesus Christ. He was to be called Jesus because what? Because he would save his people from their sins. And when we come to Christmas, we are remembering this precious gift of the Savior Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. And it, thank you, Ben. It doesn't matter who comes to us and how they come to us claiming that they're representing the apostles, you know, and that there just needs to be a little more something. And really, the Apostle Paul left you back at milk, but you've got to go on to meat. You know, they say that they're the authority. In fact, they'll even tell you they're the ones that declared what the New Testament canon is. So it's just natural that they have authority over the canon because they, they declared it. You know, It's just not true. The authority is what? Not Paul. He makes it very clear. Let me be damned. The authority isn't the angels. Let them be damned. The authority isn't you or false shepherds. You be damned. The authority is what? It is the doctrine. And what is the doctrine? The doctrine is that Jesus Christ came and himself was our and is our and will be our what? Our righteousness. That he bore God's wrath on himself. This is why his mother Mary had such a sad life. Because her life was watching this son bear in himself the wrath of God. And despite perfect obedience, many mothers think their children are perfectly obedient. Rita thought I was. Rita was an idiot. (laughs) Many mothers are like that. But Mary was right. And what? He went on the cross and he bore the sins of the world. So anything that comes up against Jesus Christ is going to be handled how? By his father. By his father. Will he allow there to be any competitor? None. None. And so with confidence we come to this table, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now if the elders would come, please.